So I am excited to be joined by Janine. Is it Weibei? It's Weibei, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Um, So Janine is a teacher in uh, Chicago Public Schools. Um, Mm -hmm. Before getting into what you teach, the school you're at, what it's like to teach during a pandemic, what it's like to teach in Chicago Public Schools, I want to start with a lighter question. Um, Why teaching? Why teaching? What inspired you to get into teaching? What inspired me? I feel like that that is a good question. And I've, um, I was a youth organizer my whole life, either a youth being organized in Chicago or and became a youth organizer and worked with young people. Initially, I actually wanted to be a human rights attorney. I wanted to do international human rights law um, until I took an international human rights law and was like, this is not what I want in my life. And I um, got into a classroom. I went went back to to Jordan and taught, and just it was like you know the dream for me. It, it everything kind of clicked. I found joy. I found purpose. Um, young people are brilliant, and in a lot of ways, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, they're a captive audience in in public schools. Right? They're mandated to attend, and so I figured. Um, I can do my part in stepping into that system and building a space that is meaningful for young folks. I was a political science major in college and thought about moving to Washington and getting into politics. Um, But I think similarly to you, uh, decided that there were other avenues for change. So I decided on my end to become a teacher uh, to try to enact some of the change that I was hoping to see in uh, in the world um talk a little bit more about uh I, I love what you said youth being organized or uh being a youth organizer how does that influence your perspective in the classroom and what you're trying to accomplish i see myself as a a teacher facilitator or a teacher organizer like in my classroom um i don't i work with my young people i try to build a space where um their voices are centered they're um, you know, in a position of power, they can't, we build, co-construct curriculum together. We talk about real things happening in our community. We organize around real things happening in our community. So, um, I think a lot of what I do and a lot of the frameworks that I use in my classroom come from my experience as an organizer or as, uh, you know, being somebody who's part of, uh, communities that are working towards liberation and justice here in Chicago. And you mentioned that you teach seventh and eighth grade social studies. What are y'all working on right now? There's a lot going on in the world. Yeah. Um, Seventh grade is the year where I work with the young people to lay down some foundations and frameworks. I'm in a position where I'm lucky that I get to teach them seventh and then eighth grade. Um, And so I can do like a continuum of learning. Um, That has been this disrupted in the last two years, obviously, uh, because of COVID and remote learning and all of these things. But this year, right now, the seventh graders are preparing to put Columbus on trial. Um, I use the Columbus trial as a way to understand um, colonialism and imperialism and these kinds of systems in order for us to frame the creation of the nation state that we now call the United States. Um, and also just like putting forward uh, historically marginalized folks as perspective in, in, as the present in, um, in my classroom. And then eighth grade, 
Right now we're taking on quote unquote civics. There was a recent mandate two years ago in the state of Illinois um, where eighth graders have to have two quarters of civics. I mean, I think what everything I do in my classroom is civics. So it, it was an interesting like mandate, um, but we are about to talk about like what it means to uh, be a part of a collective of people, right? Who have to kind of work in community to, to do particular things and, and focusing on like youth voice, youth power, youth movements, things of that nature and how we participate as people in whether it be our city or our country or this world to to make change yeah what does it mean to be a citizen it's uh it's an interesting question and i feel like um you know today especially with the war going on in ukraine not just what does it mean to be a citizen of chicago of illinois of the united states but a citizen of the of the world as well mm -hmm. yeah can you describe the school that you're at, um, the demographics, just so our listeners get a feel for the um, the students that you're working with? For sure. I'm in a K through eight school, a pre-K through eight school, actually. Um, and it is a Title I school, which essentially means that we don't use the marker of free and reduced lunch anymore because everybody gets free lunch in Chicago public schools. But it's, it means that a lot of our students are considered low income uh students and um the majority of my young people are um first generation or immigrants themselves from central and, and south america um our, my school is you, you know part chicago in general um you'll know you'll know is um a heavily gentrifying city and we have some really intense historical politics around uh, place, you know, the redlining is is famous here in Chicago, uh, housing segregation, all of these things. And so my school is on the northwest side of the city of Chicago in a community that is being heavily gentrified. And so a lot of our student population is becoming whiter and more affluent as the years go on, at least in my time at the school. How has that impacted uh the politics of your school, what it's like to be uh, be a teacher in that school. And just want to emphasize, as you mentioned prior to starting the conversation, that you're speaking for yourself, not for any yeah. other teachers within your school. That's a good question. Absolutely. Um, it impacts a lot of things. I think it impacts like who has access to power in the building and who has access to voice you know when when you think of like a a school building that um most of the parents or many of the parents for example english is not their first language um navigating the school system is not something that is easy for anyone let alone uh, a parent who is working multiple jobs um there's you know, it, it creates a dynamic where some people are able to access um, and have their voices heard more often in the building or in, in the school community than others. And I think that that is um, something that, you know, is we talk about it pretty often and it's something that we're trying to combat, but obviously there's systemic barriers uh, to do that. For me as a teacher, I uh, generally feel um, that 
it impacts me in the sense that I want to make sure my young people are, are aware of their environment. And so we talk about our school demographics, our, the, the neighborhood and how it's changing, how they're being impacted by it, because they are firsthand you know, witnesses and also participants in the, in the gentrification process. So they know what it means for their rent to go up, for their family to keep having to move, for them to have to move out of the city, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, I, we put it out there and, and we break it down and we put it into context for sure. For someone who is unfamiliar with the specific logistics of Chicago public schooling and how students are assigned to schools for students who no longer live in that neighborhood, do they still attend your school or do they end up going to another school? Let me rephrase that. Do they have the option of um, still attending your school? Because obviously attending and having the option are two distinct yeah. things. They do have the option. It becomes complicated. So Chicago Public Schools is not, they, we have schools that are like neighbor, like my school's a neighborhood school. If you live within the boundary of the school, you have access to it. You can also, for example, submit, you, if you don't live in the neighborhood and you wanted to attend this school, you can submit your name into a lottery. This is me getting the giving you the gist, because even me mm -hmm. as a teacher, the, the complexities around accessing a school building, even if yeah. it's a public school, are, you know, like very challenging to understand and navigate. So there's a lottery process. You can get the lottery and then you would come to we've had students come from across the city to our building. Um, and then you have the right to graduate. So like if you started, you know, seventh grade or whatever, eighth grade, and you had to move, you have the right to continue your education in that school building until you graduate. And so there is an option. The problem is that, um, you know, if you have to move halfway across the city or into the suburbs, it's very unlikely that someone is going to bring you <laughs> back, you know, driving um, or public transit back and forth, it becomes a barrier and a challenge for sure. Yeah. So, you know, the option uh, or the you know, the possibility of staying within that school um, during the process of gentrification is for a lot of kids more of the illusion of the choice of returning rather than the actual choice if you, you know, are forced to, you know, leave that neighborhood and move to another part of the city or outside the, the city altogether. Yeah. So um, I was interested in chatting with you primarily because I'm working on this series on teacher turnover um, and the, the challenges of being a teacher, of staying in the profession, um, and uh, what the pandemic has done to uh, the teaching profession. So um, I would love to spend lots more time digging into yeah. uh, those other topics that, ye, that we've been talking about so far, but um, changing gears a little bit more toward pandemic teaching and what that's like. So the pandemic has transformed a lot of jobs. Um, how has it transformed your job? How has it transformed teaching? I think it um, has, it's kind of a, it's a good question. It's transformed a lot of things. I mean, the obvious things is that we went remote, which means that school became digital um, for a year and a half almost. Uh, and that was a major shift in, for many reasons. You know, when you're thinking about Chicago, for example, as the third largest school district in the country, um, a lot of young people didn't have access to internet at home. We didn't have 
one-on-one -on -one technology, which means young people don't have access to computers. So when you're saying everybody goes online and you know only a small part of your population has access to resources to go online, that's a that was a major shift. Um, I think, you know, if you think about how systems work, right? There is this fundamental need for um, cap capitalism will adjust to to the crisis that's happening, right? And and uh, institutions will adjust to fit a square peg into a round hole. If you if you get what I'm saying, so there there's been more recently this massive push to um, act as if nothing has happened in a lot of ways, right? Like schools should go on business as usual. We need to open buildings. We need to, um, you know, make sure that industry is, is functioning. And in order to make sure industry is functioning, we need to make sure that children have a place to be put for eight hours a day. Regardless of the well-being of those young people, it's like that is kind of the vibe. And so in terms of transformation, I think um, in a lot of ways, the system of education is um, shifting in order to continue to do what it's done, which is so socialize, indoctrinate, pump out, uh, and, and function um, despite the fact that there's a global pandemic and like, you know, literally almost a million people in the United States have died in two years, you know? And so that it's a, it's that kind of tension that's happening um, in our world and, and it's playing itself out as, as most uh, social issues and play themselves out. Um, it, schools become a battleground for these kinds of things. It's a, a process, it feels like a recontainment of the system doing everything that it can to uh, achieve the same goals, maybe via other means. So yeah. it shape shifts, but uh, you know, the end result is, is more or the less same. the same. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what about your job? So there are adults with school-aged children who know what it's like to be a parent, um, mm -hmm. to be a caregiver during a pandemic, to put your kids onto uh, a computer for, uh, let's face it, far too many hours a yes, day, absolutely. Um, to try to give them some semblance of instruction, which is, uh, in retrospect, as I work with teachers, it's so interesting because what I hear a lot is that students missed a lot of instruction, um, whether you call it missed instruction, unfinished learning, you can call it whatever. Um, you know, some some terms feel a little bit softer than others, uh, but there was a lot of time spent on the computer, and yet students have returned, um, let's say, uh, historically uh, below academically where they've been previously, or you hear teachers say they didn't get first grade. They didn't get third grade, even though they did spend, again, copious amounts of time on their uh, on their devices. Um, so from the parent perspective, and I had a kindergartner for um, the first year of the of the pandemic. Um, so they have their their perspective. What is it that they're missing from your perspective? What is it like to be on the the other side um, to try to be be teaching during uh, during these last couple of years? Yeah, 
you know, there's a, so I, I had a niece in virtual preschool who goes to my school actually. Um, and from my perspective, there's this narrative generally that's been created around um, teaching during the pandemic and whether it be the remote learning period or what have you, there is this narrative of learning loss. We've lost a year. Um, and again, there, I wanna like pause and step back and ask people to pause and step back, including teachers, right? Because, you know, in a lot of ways, yes, math, reading, social studies, whatever it might be, whatever subject, it's not going to be the same through this like virtual interaction. Um, but I challenge the notion of loss um, because it doesn't center the humanity of our young people and it doesn't center what's actually happening in context of community, right? Like learning loss according to what? According to who? What are we losing exactly? And, and based on what, right? Um, so, you know, I, I think that, and I challenge my students to do the same, is when we hear a story being told over and over again, the story of learning loss during the pandemic, I question that and pause and say, let's take 10 steps back, right? Because what we could have been doing, um, in, in my opinion, and in the opinion of people who are grassroots mobilizers on the ground, in my experience, for example, as a, as a union delegate with the Chicago Teachers Union, we were asking for human supports for our young people, access to healthcare, um, access to a social worker, access to COVID testing, access to um, PPE, right? Um, access to the internet, simple things, food, you know? And the system is saying they need to learn fractions and math and they, they lost all of the fractions in their math. And I'm like, they've lost people. They're, they're, we have children who are now uh, parentless. We had parents who lost homes because the pandemic has impacted them economically. Um, and instead of us focusing on like, are the children well? Are they safe? Can they have food on the table? Do they have a roof over their heads? Can they access a, a groceries? Can they access um, a healthcare, a, a medical professional, a mental health worker? We're asking, I, we're asking the wrong question. The loss for us is that, and, and you know, I'm seeing it, is the, the tremendous loss of collective community connection um, and the opportunity to have built a system of mutual aid during a time of crisis when we know the exact opposite thing has happened, right? Which is, you know, at this point, forget you if you lost your job during the pandemic. We sent you, you know, a couple thousand dollars through your taxes. If you didn't make it, it is what it is. You don't have housing, can't help you. You know what I mean? And so on, on the organizing end, we were pushing for those basic needs to be met. Um, and so for me, I, I was less concerned of like, you know, learning loss again versus like true fundamental grief and loss and trauma, um, you know, and, and that is the fabric that we need to reweave in order for our young people to be well again and be able to, to move through 
um, not even just systems of education, through life, through the next chapter of their of their uh, adolescence and then adulthood, right? No, I, I appreciate that response and it, it resonates deeply with me. And it was, and still is such a challenging time to feel like that idea of collective um, participation of collective community was so critical um, that we needed each other at a time when physically we also needed to be separate from one another to stay safe uh, and trying to uh, reconcile those two things. Um, I know just personally and in my life, um, but I see it professionally as well has been incredibly challenging. And I also appreciate just calling out this idea of learning loss as a narrative that has been perpetuated that I think it's just confusing to say the least. What exactly was lost um, as far as learning goes when we consider, again, the human toll that um, that this pandemic has taken? Um, not just uh, what we're experiencing today, but what we're going to experience, you know, for a couple generations to, to come as students just uh, deal with, uh, again, family members who are lost, um, and the experience of having to, to go through that in a lot of cases on their own. Yeah. I mean, I also like, in addition to that, want to say that like during that time of remote learning and what people are calling learning loss, I watched the young people of the city of Chicago rise up, right? And, and literally lead an uprising against state violence, against police violence, um, come to the, to the forefront of movement and say, this is what we demand. And we demand uh, basic human dignity and we demand the end to like the genocide of our people, right? Chicago, in context, we have almost 90%, 80 to 90% young people of color make up the city of Chicago's population. And so like, to me, that's learning. To me, that's learning in a time of extreme crisis. The young people's reaction was to mobilize themselves, take creative action, be present, speak at school board meetings, um, push for uh, you know, the defunding of the police, for example, one of the major campaigns that was happening here. And so like, there was a different type of learning happening. And I think it's, mm -hmm. it, it, it plays to the story and our mayor um, here also wants to sell you, you know, a story, a narrative, not just learning loss, but not being in school makes kids I don't know, like carjackers or something weird that she said said a few months ago that like because they're not they were re remote learning they're carjacking, which is a very strange um, thing to put on to our young people, a way to criminalize young people, a way to continue to incarcerate young people. Um, my perspective of it is our young people have led the charge for justice during a time of crisis when a lot of the adult folks were you know, we're not there to be found. We're not, we're silent. We're trying to make the machine continue to function, you know, as if things were okay. Um, and they were the wrench and they were like, absolutely not. We're not okay. This is not okay. And we, we challenge the notion of that. And I think that that is our, my young people still talk about this. You know, the, my seventh and eighth graders were very present. We talked about it while we were online. We talk about it now in class. It made a distinct um, 
impact on their experience as a young person in the city. And I think that that to me is more valuable than um, a scripted curriculum of any of any sort, for sure. Yeah, no doubt. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting how I think we try to sort of generalize the experience of living through a pandemic and uh, the experience, whether you're an adult, whether you are a child, everybody had their own, you know, their own experience trying to navigate the last couple years. And, you know, a question I want to ask um, is how your kids are doing, because I think it's a it, it, it's such a nuanced question at the beginning of the year, this school year. So the 2021-22 school year, something that I heard from you know, various school and district administrators was that students returned to school without a whole lot of grit was one of the words that I heard without a whole lot of social skills, without sort of the the skills to interact with their peers, because a lot of them had been isolated for, mm-hmm. um, for a, you know, a fairly long period of time. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there were some students that I think you're uh, alluding to who have had the opportunity to engage in certain social interactions where they are developing some critical life skills um, and that idea of learning loss that is so narrow to a specific type of learning, a specific type of curriculum fails to um, account for the learning that is going to serve them for, you know, the rest of their lives. So I'm just curious kind of how your kids are doing and what you see, just to piggyback, continue the conversation, um, what you see as uh, the the ways that they have grown um, as they've navigated the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a question I ask them all the time and it yeah. varies. I think they're um, generally happy to be back in community with others. I think that many of them are coming back with um, an intense amount of trauma and grief. Um, uh, It's been, I mean, for me as an adult, it's been hard to adjust, let alone the expectation of young people to adjust in, you know, this brave new world, uh, very (laughs) post-apocalyptic universe that we're living in. Um, So I think it varies. It varies on whatever day, whatever experience, what 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 they've carried into the classroom with them. And so um, there's a sense of, okay, we're getting into a groove of things. There's, you know, I come to school, but there's also been a massive amount of disruption. Um, so like, it's, we're all sitting with uncertainty. We're all sitting, you know, it's a little eerie, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so for, for example, um, you know, some right after the winter break in January, January was one of those months where we, it was like uh, entire groups of students disappearing from the school building. Um, I had at some point, you know, half my class missing pretty consistently, whether because it was like rotating quarantines, um, trying to incorporate students who are at home with students who are in the building. It was just, a, it was very like, and and nothing really talked about directly. And we just assumed we understood like this kind of influx of people coming, people going, people disappearing, people not showing up for weeks at a time. We don't know, 
you know, what's going on with them, where they are, was, is very unsettling, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think those things really do impact the young people, um, just day-to-day feelings uh, and causes stress and causes them to react negatively. I mean, school spaces um, are hostile spaces to begin with. <laughs> you yeah. know, they're not, no. they're not like, I, you know, again, my, <laughs> my school tries more than most, but if you've, you've talked to uh, Dr. Stovall and things, he'll tell you the, the long legacy of schooling in this country is not necessarily to make a space that is welcoming and supportive of young people, but to um, socialize them in a particular way, right? And so they're back in that space during a global pandemic, watching people come and go, being quarantined themselves, you know, masks on, masks on. It's, it's been a lot for them. And so generally they're well, generally they're trying their best, um, but we're all co-processing together um, as things move forward, for sure. Yeah. January and I think a good chunk of February uh, will ideally go down as maybe the most challenging months of of the pandemic. Um, And yeah, just I had my youngest who was in preschool was home for four of those weeks on two separate occasions, two weeks, um, because her school was in quarantine. I uh, observe, I I supervise um, a couple teachers here in uh, the Portland, uh, Oregon area. And I observed one of um, this teacher's classrooms, a ninth grade teacher. And I think there were six students maybe out of 25 in that classroom on that day. Um, And uh, it was, yeah, it was just a strange and uh, I think, yeah, confusing, just like, I don't know, ambiguous, almost like we were in this type of waiting place, just trying Mm -hmm. to wait it out, but wondering um, and sort of, yeah, sitting on the edges of our seats, not in a good way of uh, what was going to come next. Yep, exactly. And and young people are uh, hyper aware of those shifts, uh, you know, and the discomfort. And it, they they viscerally react to it, for sure. They viscerally react to it. And I think as adults, we so often shy away from sort of like, sitting in those spaces and having conversations about what feelings come up during those times um, because we don't want to, and I don't know, augment any trauma, but we sort of proceed with that nothing to see here um, instead of just trying to help students process. uh, And I think even as adults, I think we need uh, (laughs) the opportunity to process some of that stuff too. Um, So uh, how long have you been teaching at the school that you're at? The school that I'm at, this is my sixth year here. Your sixth year. Mm-hmm. Um, what is turnover like at the school that you are teaching at? Is there a fairly steady stream of teachers coming in, going out? What does that, what does that typically look like? We, um, we actually, it's something that uh, ironically can be like looked up, which I didn't know until recently, like the mm. school per school and their turnover rate. Um, but we have a significantly lower turnover rate than a lot of schools do um, around us or in in the city of Chicago. I think that's for a lot of reasons. One is like the geographic positionality. Two is that we have a generally supportive administration that um, give or take does their best to try to mitigate harm and 
and damage when they're able. Um, and we have, um, you know, I think we've struggled the last two years, but in general, in my experience prior to the last two years, cultivated a practice of community um, and collective care. And I think that we, that keeps a lot of people around. And also, yeah, like I mentioned, we tend to have more access to resources now that the neighborhood is, is changing in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, and so that I think also keeps teachers around. So like some of my colleagues have been around for decades at the school, um, which is amazing. And I think really supportive to the young people who are coming through there. They've taught children and then they taught children's children and some of them are onto grandchildren and so on. And so there's like family uh, legacies that are in the building. Yeah, a generational um, yeah. access um, is incredibly powerful. Um, you know, for all of those, uh, all those generations for the grandparent, for the parent, um, really mm-hmm. creates that sense of community and that sense of a neighborhood school that this is someplace uh, hopefully safe to, to go to and someplace we can go and grow as a, as a human being. Yeah. I like some of the things that you said, generally supportive, give or take, they tried. <laughs> to, uh, so um, we can uh, dig into that if you want, but you mentioned that uh, you feel like you're in a place that cultivates a practice of community and collective care. What does that What does that look like in in practice? Um, because uh, as uh, you know, you alluded to you uh, your school has um, lower rates of turnover, and I think um, when you look at the research, is all of those reasons a sense of community, a sense of some admin support that keeps teachers where they are. Um, I think that uh, the idea of generational teaching um, certainly can keep teachers in a place, knowing that they're teaching um, the kids of uh, some of the the people that they taught years ago um, is certainly powerful. So um, what does that look like in practice? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, one thing is that my colleagues are brilliant and I consider them you know, family and friends, right? That's one major yeah. thing. And I and I know that, for example, if I need something or if they need something, we have created an environment where um, mutual support is readily given, you know? Um, and I think that that's really, really important. Um, in my role as a union delegate, I've attempted, I've worked really hard to foster um, an environment of solidarity and and like uh, like I said, community care and mutual aid and all of these things. One one thing that really brought us together was um, in 2019. Unfortunately, we had to go on strike uh, for a very long time. It felt like forever, but it was about 15 days, give or take, with the weekends. But that time period was a moment that we solidified what our purpose as a collective mm-hmm. body of educators in our school building, right? Because we didn't walk out of our buildings for pay raises, right? The if, if you were paying attention or the, your listeners out there were paying attention to what was happening in Chicago in 2019, our major demands 
um, were social workers and school nurses and mental health care and yeah. um, rent control, uh, which teachers union has ever you know gone on strike for rent control things things that our communities um and we uh, in coalition with uh, other organizations and community-based organizations and organizers and activists on the ground were asking for and um our building in particular in our school but also across the entire city we were like this is hard and this is you know no teacher wants to walk out of their classroom and walk into uncertainty. And, and, you know, a friend of mine said this, but I really believe it in a lot of ways, teachers are rule followers, followers. I, I tend to be the exception. And so like striking is the ultimate, like you're breaking the rule, right? Even though we have uh, collective bargaining rights. Um, and, but we did it because we believed in something greater than ourselves. And I think that we now across the building fundamentally understand that that's, that's what we're, what the positionality of, and our lens, right? This is the space we're operating from. That was one major moment for me um, as an educator in the building. I think other things, uh, like we mentioned, our admin um, is generally supportive. I think that they're in a, oftentimes in a tough position and they have to step in front of the firing squad that is Chicago Public Schools, um, trying to push a particular policy or many policies um, into buildings and they do their best to shield us from it. Sometimes they cannot. Um, and sometimes they have to be on a particular end of the spectrum that, um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily be on. And so I think that that has been challenging, but in general, they try to move um, alongside us as comrades and colleagues. And that's that's helpful. So if I feel like, you know, I can say we need X, Y, Z or this is a struggle. How can we work on it in community? Um, we use transformative justice uh, mm -hmm. models within our building, not just for students, but as much as possible. We try to implement it for staff, open lines of communication. And I think all of those things have um, and, and the willingness, there's a willingness to engage in productive struggle in a lot of ways. Um, and so, you know, it's not like there's no conflict, but folks are willing to be like, okay, there is conflict. How do we engage in productive struggle to move to the kind of next step of that? And I think that mm -hmm. that helps with, you know, not people not feeling as isolated or as frustrated or as silenced and which I know a lot of um, educators are feeling right now and in general in the profession. Yeah, thank you so much for, for that response. Um, yeah, that, that definitely resonates a lot, a lot with me and the experiences that I had um, as a teacher. There's a, a, um, a concept from Bell Hooks, an idea of comrades and struggle. Um, that I think um, aligns directly with what you're referring to, just admin taking on that role of being there with you side by side. And um, that idea of transformative justice, um, I haven't been in a school that necessarily practiced that. Um, we, uh, at the last school I taught at, um, were proponents of restorative justice um, and um, using that as a tool 
to build relationships um, with students. But one of the things that I noticed through uh, sort of the implementation of that philosophy was not avoiding conflict um, at the adult level, which I think often happens in schools. Um, but uh, the, the things that you practice with students, you sort of find yourself practicing with other adults as well um, in creating this family that engages in productive struggle. The struggle was real, it is real. Um, and uh, each day is an attempt to just sort of try to get to that that next step as you as you said. Um, and uh, yeah, there's something about that that philosophy that creates that school environment in which um, everyone is just constantly committed to trying to make the the school. A better place, um, and putting your egos aside, and recognizing that it's not uh, about you, but it's rather about this this greater purpose. Absolutely, and you know, I'm again, I'm speaking from my own experience, course, and I'm yeah. sure, and I'm sure others in our building might have like a variation on a on a theme, but um, I think that is a large part of why we have a sense of lower turnover, and I and just the reality is like black schools on the south and west side of the city are just completely disinvested in or closed and teachers have been laid off in mass. And so like, you know, this idea of turnover when we're thinking systemically, it's not always a choice of a teacher to say, hey, I'm gonna resign or something, or I'm gonna switch schools or I'm gonna leave the profession. A lot of times it's a, a functionality of the system to disinvest um, from communities of color and specifically teachers of color, which is a major issue. Our profession is majority white women like that. That's the reality of teaching um, across the board in the entire country. And there's a reason for that. That's not like a coincident, co coincidental issue, right? Um, yeah. And so I think that the, the when we're talking about turnover, I guarantee, and I haven't looked at it, but I'm sure if somebody, somebody's done the research at some point and you, I would assume there would be a discrepancy based on uh, race based on class, based on geography of particular schools. Um, and Chicago, as always, is um, at the forefront of, you know, neoliberal experimentation <laughs> with with uh, school, the school systems and how we can, you know, make sure that they operate in a particular way and to, to siphon off and silo off who they can. Yeah, shout out to Rahm Emanuel there. Yeah, man. Well, Rom, Rom, you know, did it big. He was like, you know, all at once, let's just do this, you know. But it, the, prior to Rom, it was every year shutting down yeah. schools and, yeah. um, you know, doing really strange stuff that not a lot of people know about, like um, cohabitating schools. So putting like dividing a school in half and putting two schools in one space. And then it, it, it was just like really weird stuff that caused uh, harm and tension within communities for absolutely no reason other and put students physical safety uh, at jeopardy for them to to have to cross into other communities and go to school it was you know just just arbitrary wild uh, racist violent policies um, that the communities have been pushing back against for generations now and a lot of that violence ends up with teachers being laid off, uh, pushed out, et cetera, et cetera. So I would yep. assume a lot of that is connected to the turnover rate for sure. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the research does bear out that um, teachers at uh, teachers who teach at schools um, that typically um, service uh, students from low SES backgrounds um, have much higher rates of turnover than um, yeah than schools that have higher um, higher SES populations. So yeah, and no, no no surprise there. And a lot of it is related to that idea of disinvestment that you have uh, have referred to. And uh, you know, you mentioned this idea of choice and how it's not always choice that you are uh, either leaving a school or leaving the profession entirely. Um, I think that uh, that's the case for most teachers, regardless of what kind of school that they're at. Is there always something that is forcing them out and you know of course they can make the choice to stay in that school building but at the end of the day it's uh, it's often not a choice um it's more so being forced into into those situations i mean we're having we already are in a teacher shortage crisis yeah, in the state yeah. of the state of illinois is struggling um to begin with um to keep to, to even find teachers. And again, you know, you create a problem systemically and then say, oh, we need to fix this problem. We, there are no teachers, but you make, you, you know, you make it very challenging to find a teacher. You disinvest in teacher education programs. Yeah. You make, you make it really hard and have to jump through hoops to get licensure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you say, where are all the teachers? Yeah. And you put, you put teachers, you devalue the profession. You you force teachers into a position where um, they're choosing between their life and their livelihood, which is what happened during this pandemic. Um, you come, you you know, when I say you, I mean like, for example, the the government government entities of the city of Chicago have come out and said just horrific things about teachers. Um, and I think the profession that we're in is uniquely situated in the sense that like. What other profession is the expectation that you stay, you come early, you stay late, you martyr yourself, uh, you pay money out of your own pocket to, <laughs> to keep your, your space alive, to give access to young people. You know what I mean? I pay, and I'm not unique in this, uh, hundreds, if not thousands of dollars out of pocket yeah. on, a on a regular basis to provide access to basic things for, our, uh, for my classroom. Um, and so like that we're functioning that that is the expectation and of all teachers everywhere. Um, I don't believe that that's the expectation of all professions everywhere. I don't know a lot of folks in corporate America whose expectation is they pay bundles out of pocket to make sure that their office is set up or something. Right. Um, and also, you know, the, with that people who step into this profession, um, Often, you know, right or wrong, if they do right or wrong, that's one thing. But most most teachers that I've come across do it because they believe that they're doing right in this world and want to be um, to create space for young people to thrive. Um, and, I, you know, no, I, that nobody becomes a public school teacher to become like a millionaire. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we don't do yeah. it to get rich. Right. Um, and so I think that there's there needs to be a, a general understanding that like teacher, at, we, we have to invest in um, public education in a meaningful, thoughtful, critical, 
way that is in a way that is led by community, led with the the thought of self determination and to respect folks' life. Like as a as an educator during a pandemic, I've had to, uh, and as a union organizer, had to field phone calls from from staff members who were crying, scared to return to the building, um, and at the same time fearing because they were getting threatening emails from Chicago public schools that they're going to lose their job. And they're like, I'm in a position where my mother lives with me and it's, you know, she's 90. If I go to school, I'm scared I'm going to hurt her. But at the same time, I don't want to lose my job. Like we don't need to put people who are willing to sacrifice life and limb and literally consider them, you know, putting ourselves in front of bullets for children because the United States has, you know, has this very unique problem. And 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 to to force educators to to be villainized when they're asking for basic human dignity and rights you know that that's not going to support the profession or support the teacher shortage and so i think that that would be the push is treat um the profession of education treat public education spaces as human spaces as spaces that deserve dignity um, not as a, a dumping ground for political rhetoric, but as um, mm. a place for uh, collective wellness. And, and that would require like a revolutionary shift um, in how education operates, uh, in my personal opinion. Absolutely. Well, let's uh, put a pit in that and save that yeah. for another conversation, uh, because Absolutely. that is also one of my uh, favorite uh, topics is uh, imagining what uh, that new type of schooling environment. Let's just get rid of schooling altogether. Let's just call it, it something else. One hundred percent. I used to envision this thought experiment of uh, a local school just literally um, chaining up its front doors, and then you know five yeah. ten seconds later reopening it and just saying this is going to be something else. We're going to do something else with this space this symbolic gesture is going to help us, you know, create a distinct separation from the past to something new. And what is it that, uh, that we're trying to yeah. trying to create and how can we um, truly respect teachers um, and respect the profession as we, as we go about doing that. Um, so this was, this was a lot of fun for me. Um, I appreciate your time. Yeah, I know that you uh, finished up a full day of teaching. Um, <laughs> yeah, no problem. So uh, this was this was great. And yeah, let's uh, let's find another time to to chat because um, yeah, like I yeah. said, I enjoyed myself. One hundred percent. I I would. I'm also in that space of radically imagining what education actually should look like, and I'm with it. Chain up the yeah. school buildings and let's figure it out. For sure. All right. Well, Janine Weibe, thank you for joining Fishing for Problems. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you for inviting me, Matt.